0: Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. In January 2021, at the ASSA meetings, which is the big U.S. economics profession gathering, the Association of Christian Economists hosted two academic sessions. One of those was a panel of theologians and economists, all tasked with answering the following question. What does a Christian vision for economic justice require of United States policy regarding taxation and government spending? The four panel participants were John Anderson from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Daniel Finn from St. John's University, Enoch Hill from Wheaton College, and Christina McRory from Creighton University. Over the course of four episodes, we're sharing each of the presentations from that panel discussion, followed by a longer interview conversation with each panelist in which we dig into the ideas from their remarks. If you prefer, you can also go and read printed versions of each of the panelists' contributions, which appear in the spring 2021 issue of Faith in Economics. Today, we lead off with John Anderson. John is the Baird Family Professor of Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the Executive Director of the Central Plains Research Data Center. John is an established leader in the field of public finance, with numerous publications, including a textbook on the topic. John has also served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors from 2005 to 2006, and has advised foreign governments on taxation and government budget issues, as he discusses a bit in our conversation here. John has, over the years, also turned some of his scholarly attention to thinking about biblical principles for taxation, spending, and government debt. And since that's the topic of our conversation, you can find the links to some of that writing in the notes to this episode. What I appreciate about John's contribution is that he has a flexible and pragmatic approach to these policy questions. He does not think that God ordains specific tax laws or rules for government debt. At the same time, he finds a lot of broad guidance in scripture for how we should think about these policies. I suspect I could have pushed him to a point where we found some real disagreement on policy questions, but that would have been a bit of a distraction. His message is that there are different legitimate priorities that we need to balance and that we need to pay attention in particular to the long-term consequences of our choices. Uh, with that, let's go first to the recording of John's presentation from January, and then we'll jump straight into the interview.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Uh, let us uh, let me share my screen and pull up some slides here. So I've titled uh, my, my uh, introductory comments, uh, what does the Lord require? This plays off the uh, the well-known uh, passage in Micah, of course, uh, that justice is required. So, let me begin with uh, some thoughts about what justice is. Uh, in the simplest definition, we think about justice as giving people their due. Uh, and if you uh, if you go to uh, Mills uh, for uh, a little bit more uh, nuance on justice, you'll see that. Uh, Mills has a two-part definition uh, that justice is a rule of conduct and a sentiment that sanctions that rule. Both aspects are required. And he argues that our understanding of justice is both uh, subjective and uh, at times uh, ambiguous. And I think we're, we're well aware of that as we uh, hear calls for justice uh, from various uh, quarters in our contemporary society. In contemporary usage, uh, however, we're often seeing that uh, the idea of justice is conflated with mercy, and I think we need to keep the two uh, distinct as we, as we think about uh, what justice uh, uh, requires. Scripture presents God's justice as repayment to his creatures, rendering them due rewards according to their actions, both uh, good and bad. So a Christian view of social justice is also rooted in the biblical conception of what it means to be human. Uh, We are created in the image of God. The Imago Dei is an important uh, starting point. We are created with purpose, with dignity, and with identity. And that perspective uh, presumes that there's a transcendent moral order. So a just society is one that supports godly living, or at least makes it easier for people uh, to be good. And social justice Perspectives that identify particular groups of people as unrighteous, uh, I think, pervert Christian principles. And you may you may think about uh, the 1%, the top 1% of the income distribution and what is often said about uh, the, that group in particular. As Christians, I think we have an obligation to work for justice, and we have to do so within the context of uh, justice from God's perspective. Uh, we may do that by being co-belligerents with other organizations uh, in the way that Francis Schaefer advocated, uh, uh, but I think we do need to be careful about partnering with organizations uh, that are advocating the antithesis of biblical uh, viewpoints. So let me begin with uh, some thoughts about the biblical principles of taxation and see if some of these ideas uh, which are based on Scripture uh, are relevant here. This comes out of some work I I published back in 1999. Uh, These are principles that I've identified that I think are relevant. First of all, I think Scripture teaches clearly that we need to render to Caesar what, uh, what we owe Caesar. Uh, I think that means we need to pay our taxes. Jesus himself uh, advocated that kind of obedience to uh, tax law. I think that's uh, the first principle. uh, We need to pay our taxes. Secondly, I think uh, the scripture requires uh, justice in the tax system. It should be fair in its treatment of taxpayers. Uh, Certainly in the administration of a tax system, uh, fairness is required. I've got some experience in... uh, former Soviet and Balkan economies, socialist and even communist governments, where uh, the uh, the tax, uh, taxes required of state-owned enterprises and individuals were essentially arbitrary and subject to negotiation with the uh, tax authorities. And that uh, violates those principles. I think thirdly, compassion is required. This is clear from scripture, both in the Old Testament passages as well as elsewhere. And I think that means uh, ability to pay considerations should be included as we think about Uh, taxes. And fourthly, uh, I think that stewardship of resources is required. Uh, This goes all the way back to uh, Genesis and the idea that we're stewards of God's creation. I think that means that uh, in the context of taxation, we need to be mindful of excess burdens and deadweight losses, which are ways in which uh, inefficiencies uh, are identified as a result of taxation. So let me briefly look at some tax data and trends uh, as well. Uh, This figure uh, comes from a a recent paper by David Splinter that shows uh, trends in the progressive federal income tax uh, going back to 1979. So we're looking at a a 40 year period here and you'll see that by the bottom quintile, middle quintile, and top quintile, the average federal tax rates uh, over time. For the bottom quintile, uh, the average uh, tax rate's been declining uh, about 7.6% over the entire period, as you see. For the middle uh, quintile, uh, 5.2% reduction. And for the top quintile, some fluctuation, but uh, essentially flat, a slight 6 tenths of a percent reduction over this 40-year period in the average uh, federal tax rate paid by uh, that group of uh, taxpayers. So you'll see that average federal tax rates have been declining in general, except uh, in the top uh, quintile where they've been essentially flat over this time period. Secondly, uh, let me look at uh, the question uh, briefly of of how fair is fair. When we think about uh, equity in taxation or fairness in taxation, of course, uh, Mills is right. Uh, Sometimes this is uh, arbitrary and subjective. Here is a slide that shows you uh, for uh, the federal income tax in particular. If you look at the top quintile, the top fifth of the income distribution, they earn uh, 51% of the income and they pay about 84% of the tax. And so my, my question is, how fair is fair? If, uh, if you think that we need to uh, raise taxes on upper income people in order to make the system fair, in order to have them pay their fair share, as it's often said, Uh, Then the question is, what does it require if uh, if they're already paying 84% of all the tax uh, and earning 50% of the income. I'll I'll stipulate uh, that we've got a very uneven uh, income distribution that's obvious from the numbers, Uh, but the the question remains how fair is fair uh, as we think about uh, these issues. Then I do want to emphasize this idea of stewardship and excess burden, because I think stewardship uh, is an important biblical principle, and, and I think when we apply it to taxation, it means we need to care about excess burdens and deadweight losses. So if you take uh, the estimate from uh, Saez et al on the elasticity of taxable income, and uh, you use the midpoint of their estimates, uh, you, can, you can calculate that the marginal excess burden of taxation if you increase taxes across the board, uh, across the uh, income distribution, the marginal excess burden is 19 and a half cents per dollar of revenue raised. If you, uh, if you focus only on the top 1% of the income earners, uh, you get a marginal excess burden that's uh, essentially 34 cents. So For each dollar you raise in revenue, you're essentially throwing away 34 cents in uh, GDP or economic welfare. So proposals to increase the tax rates at the top uh, come at a very substantial cost. And you, you may think that's, that's worth doing, uh, but you need to be aware of the fact that it's uh, very costly to, uh, to raise taxes uh, because of the uh, responses that are likely uh, among those taxpayers. So if, if you look in particular at the Biden tax plan and you use those estimates from the Saez et al uh, paper on the elasticity of taxable income, Uh, You'll see that for uh, the uh, the revenue raised, according to that plan, which is uh, nearly $300 million, you'll uh, you'll have an excess marginal excess burden of over $100 million. And so you may raise 300 million in additional revenue, but it comes at the cost of about 100 million in additional uh, excess burden in the process. So I think from a stewardship point of view, we've gotta be mindful of this. And, and it means uh, that we need to follow some of the principles of optimal taxation and think about raising taxes uh, in a way that uh, keeps uh, excess burdens as low as possible, which generally calls for uh, broad-based tax uh, systems and, uh, and relatively low rates. So what are some thoughts on potential tax reforms? I think the, the evidence indicates that the U.S. is reaching a limit of how much we can rely on the personal income tax. That's our primary source of revenue at the federal level uh, and it's tilted heavily to the upper portion of the income distribution. Uh, the top half of uh, all taxpayers uh, pay nearly all the income taxes in the U.S., uh, about 97% according to the latest data. And I think that situation is not conducive to broad support of public institutions and programs. If we want a thriving democracy, I think uh, we need to think hard about uh, this. We're in jeopardy of the situation where uh, the decisive voter in a median voter kind of context is a non-income taxpayer. And I don't think that uh, aligns incentives uh, well for a thriving democracy. So there are both efficiency and equity concerns uh, with that sort of tax policy that have suggested uh, various uh, reform ideas. So I think given our uh, income tax system, which is complex and unstable uh, and distortionary, uh, we need to think about alternatives. And the potential ideas, some of which Steven has already identified, include a basic income or flat tax uh, proposal, a value-added tax, uh, as uh, most of the rest of the world uh, relies primarily on. Uh, certainly a carbon tax is a possibility uh, to think about or progressive uh, consumption tax as an alternative to our income tax. My own preference, and having done some work on this related to the 2005 uh, President's Tax Panel, Uh, is for the progressive consumption tax. Uh, In the long run, a consumption-oriented tax uh, helps provide uh, greater growth potentials in the economy, uh, the accumulation of capital, which is uh, essential for growth. But making it progressive uh, relieves uh, some of the regressivity aspects uh, that typically accompany a a consumption-oriented tax. And so uh, we can come back and talk about uh, those alternatives, if you like, later on. On the expenditure side, I I think about uh, expenditure programs uh, from a social insurance perspective. And I'm I'm interested in the idea of the Samaritan's Dilemma in particular, which is developed in economic theory. And so I'll talk about that and some expenditure trends and then uh, turn to debt and deficits. So the Samaritan's Dilemma is this fascinating uh, development in economic theory. Uh, which is consistent with uh, Christian perspectives, obviously. The idea was originally uh, suggested by Buchanan and uh, the the formal modeling of this has been uh, developed by Cote. The idea is uh, that the rich care about the welfare of the poor and the poor face the potential loss of unanticipated medical expenses or crop losses or other kinds of uh, disasters. Uh, And the government is assumed to represent the rich and makes transfers on their behalf. And as the government makes unconditional transfers to the poor, they have an incentive to underinsure. Uh, and the rich are not able to commit to not help the poor even if the government makes uh, transfers that are desirable in an ex-ante uh, perspective. Uh, this is the, the essence of, uh, of the Samaritan uh, aspect of it. so failure to adequately insure on behalf of the poor uh, anticipating private charity results in adverse efficiency outcomes. Since the rich choose how much protection against loss to provide to the poor, and the poor are not providing that uh, themselves, uh, m- not making those decisions themselves. So the conclusion is that uh, efficiency can be restored uh, by the government ensuring the, the, the appropriate amount of insurance. Uh, so optimal transfers of in-kind transfers of insurance are the policy outcome here. Let me look very briefly at expenditure trends, and these may be familiar to uh, most of you, but uh, these are the latest uh, long-term forecasts by uh, the CBO. And you'll see going out to 2050 that they're projecting uh, outlays uh, rising and the gap between outlays and revenues growing over time, which means uh, deficits will be rising uh, for a number of years. Uh, In the middle panel of this, Uh, figure, you'll see the consequence of that and you'll see that the net interest line uh, will be rising And alarmingly, the net interest line will be rising to a point where uh, our net interest costs on on debt will be above uh, what we we spend on Social Security or all of our discretionary spending programs. Uh, And so while in the current environment, that nearly zero interest rates, uh, it makes a lot of sense to borrow, long term, we anticipate that the interest costs will be rising and creating a very substantial uh, problems uh, in the economy in terms of uh, fiscal policy. Let me uh, turn uh, to uh, principles of debt as well. These are uh, biblical principles that I've identified in a, in a paper I wrote in 2013. I think scripture uh, indicates that uh, debt is to be avoided. Certainly, uh, debt is a a biblical metaphor for sin at the personal level, and uh, national indebtedness is sometimes uh, judgment of God. Not always, of course. Uh, You'll see that in the Deuteronomy passages in particular. Uh, But the second principle, I think, is that debt uh, is to be repaid. At a personal level, uh, responsibility is required, and and, uh, it's up to us uh, if we incur debts uh, to pay those debts. And thirdly, I think there are circumstances where Scripture requires that debt is to be forgiven. Uh, In some cases, uh, that's an appropriate uh, response. Uh, Certainly, the Leviticus uh, 25 passage, this is the uh, Jubilee uh, focus of uh, the Old Testament where debts are forgiven and, uh, and and the playing field is uh, wiped clean uh, periodically. So I, I think as much as we can uh, infer about debt from scripture, these are important principles. In terms of our own uh, circumstance, uh, this is a CBO uh, figure that shows us uh, that while uh, we previously had a peak of debt to GDP uh, ratio of just over 100% as a result of the Second World War, and it took us to the 1980s to run that down to about 25% of GDP. Uh, the forecast is that our debt to GDP ratio will be uh, eventually approaching uh, 200%, which is uh, unprecedented in, uh, in our uh, modern history. Uh, so this is a real uh, issue that we need to uh, focus on and address and think about what would be required in, t- in terms of uh, managing uh, this debt uh, as we move forward. So let me conclude with just a summary of, of the principles I've identified here. In terms of taxation, I think uh, Scripture teaches that we, we need to pay our taxes. I think justice is required or fair treatment in the, in the administration of the tax system is essential. I think that compassion, which is required in Scripture, means an ability to pay uh, orientation in our tax system. I don't think scripture teaches any particular uh, tax method or uh, it's certainly not an optimal tax rate, but uh, I think these principles uh, do inform how we think about it. And finally, uh, stewardship is required. And, and I think the direct analog uh, for us thinking about taxation is uh, minimizing excess burdens and deadweight losses. Uh, so we need to reform our tax system and we and, and I would suggest the progressive consumption tax, uh, although alternatives could be considered as well. And then finally, justice in public finance, I think has its requirements in terms of our debt. As we think about debt, uh, certainly at a personal level, uh, we need to be careful about uh, debt. Uh, we need to pay, repay our debt and uh, there are circumstances where debt uh, should be forgiven. So our US federal, Debt uh, is growing to historic levels uh, and uh, long-term there will be uh, substantial costs related to that. Uh, and we will have to uh, think about uh, hard decisions in, in our uh, federal budgets uh, moving forward, including uh, reform of entitlement programs and the tax system in order to, uh, to manage that. So with that, let me conclude and uh, stop my uh, sharing of the screen here and, uh, and turn it over to the next speaker.
0: Thanks so much for having a conversation here today with me john it's uh, it was a real pleasure to have you and everyone else together for the symposium. Uh, even if we had to do it online, and I think the collection of writing that we pulled together for this issue is the journal is going to be really interesting and helpful for folks. i'd like to dive uh, right in and and ask you some questions that I think will push the ideas a little bit further because you raise a lot of interesting issues, but you're you're able to only make suggestions and allude to a whole bunch of interesting questions and literature in your talk, which I appreciate, but it gives us a lot to dig into at this point. And so I think we'd like, I'd like to talk a little bit about taxation in our conversation here today, a little bit about government debt, a little bit about social insurance, and then whatever else comes up that, that you and I think is interesting as we go. Uh, but let's start with taxes, because a lot of your your expertise and a lot of what you contribute here is has to do with taxation. And of course, taxation has both um, a moral and a pragmatic dimension, and you, you talk about both, which I appreciate. And, and I encourage people to go check out the long form of the essay in the journal and not just listen to the conversation we have here because you give a lot of great, great content. But one of the questions that you, one of the issues you raise, though, is that in a tax system, we want, I think maybe for democratic or for moral purposes, uh, you want the burden of taxation to be shared. So, for example, you argue that there's a reasonable case to be made for progressive taxation based on the ability to pay, but also that, and and I'll quote you here directly, um, half of all taxpayers pay nearly all the income taxes in the United States, and that the situation is not conducive to a broad support of public institutions and programs as required in a thriving democracy. Indeed, we're in jeopardy of being in a situation where the decisive voter or the median voter is a non-income taxpayer. In such a situation, the incentives for citizen voters are misaligned. So I, I'm sympathetic to this concern, and, and I think it's a real one, although I see the problem as having two culprits. Uh, the first is that the progressive tax structure, which you, um, which you talk about. And the second is the fact that we like to administer financial benefits to people through the tax code, partly because it's really convenient for lawmakers. Um, but particularly, I'm thinking about programs like refundable child tax credits, which have recently become very popular, but also the, income, the earned income tax credit. So, so, I ask you now, if you were put in charge of tax policy, uh, how would you balance these things? How do you design a tax code that actually has broad participation?
1: Well, yeah, these, this, is a, this is a good and a critical question. So, it's, uh, it's very interesting to think about the, the possibilities here. I do think it's, it's not a healthy situation where approximately half of the uh, income distribution, the bottom half, uh, effectively pays no income tax. Now, I, I readily recognize that there are other federal taxes paid by uh, the bottom half of the income distribution. They pay payroll taxes and federal excise taxes and so on. But in terms of our most important source of revenue at the federal government level, it's the personal income tax. And uh, I think when people essentially uh, have no skin in the game, uh, there are uh, perverse incentives uh, in terms of the, the public goods and services that are demanded as a result. And so the, the case I laid out where the median voter may be the decisive voter, of course, in, in simple voting theory, maybe a non-income taxpayer, is, uh, is designed to uh, point out that you know that, that's, that's a problematic situation. And so yes, we need to have uh, shared support for federal government programs. And I, I think part of the issue that you've pointed toward is, is critical, and that's it's the role of tax expenditures, right? So we've got got a federal budget with uh, outlays and uh, appropriation bills that are passed by Congress to appropriate federal funds for uh, various purposes. But we also have uh, quite a few programs that are are run basically through the back door of the tax system and we call those tax expenditures. Uh, And so whether it's for housing or healthcare or childcare or other programs, uh, we're running those programs not through uh, expenditure procedures with uh, Congress allocating funds, we're doing it indirectly through uh, the tax system. That may be for convenience, as you pointed out, although it puts the IRS in the role of, of doing more than simply collecting taxes, they've got to enforce and, uh, and manage uh, these uh, tax expenditure programs. So uh, the federal government does publish in, in the budget uh, documents If you go uh, to an appendix uh, you can find the federal tax expenditures there listed but congress doesn't typically take a unified look at both the expenditures and the tax expenditures to get to get the whole picture of what the federal government is spending and to think deliberatively about uh, whether it's appropriate to uh, to have some of those expenditures coming through the tax code rather than through appropriations so i think this whole process of uh, tax expenditures in the tax code clouds some of the issues related to uh, federal uh, expenditure programs and uh, and the way in which uh, we provide federal public goods and services indirectly and uh, I think
0: less transparently uh, than would be healthy. I totally agree that that the, the way this expenditures versus tax expenditures works, it does it does alter the political decision making at least somewhat, I don't see, for example, people writing about the long term sustainability of the child tax credit, um, even though it's a it's a big expenditure. Um, and, and partly that's just because it isn't on the books in the same way, although there, there may be also there's a sense that we could change it more readily than than perhaps something like Social Security yeah, you know these are big questions. Let's you you have a whole bunch of interesting content in in your essay about tax reform proposals. So let me give you a chance to to give us um, something of, of the way you'd, you'd you'd change things if you had the power. So for instance, you talk about value-added taxes, you mentioned carbon taxes briefly, and, and other changes that we could make or that have been proposed. You note that we should probably try not to squeeze additional revenue out of the in, individual income tax. And you support a move in your essay toward um, some kind of progressive consumption tax, I think, that's the way I read it, could you briefly describe how a progressive consumption tax would work and what advantages this kind of approach would have?
1: Yeah, sure. And this is, this reflects uh, a lot of thinking done by uh, economists over the last 20 years or so, even longer. So, you know, the fundamental question is whether we want to tax income or tax consumption. And uh, this is a longstanding debate in, in the field of public finance. And you know we've been uh, relying on uh, the income tax as our primary source of revenue for the federal government, unlike European countries with value-added taxes, for example, where uh, the VAT is the major source of revenue. And the, and the personal income tax is a relatively smaller uh, source of revenue and, and uh, only applies to relatively high-income people and, and so on. So it's a very different picture in those economies the VAT is sometimes criticized as being a money machine because it's such a broad-based tax uh, and it's able to generate vast amounts of revenue at uh, reasonably low rates. So, I mean, we've, we've been reluctant to go in that direction in the United States for various reasons, including political reasons, and including the fact that we've got a patchwork system of, uh, about 45 state sales taxes and you'd have to think about coordinating all of these uh, different state sales taxes with uh, some kind of federal value added tax. So there there are a lot of complications there if you think about going in that direction. But if you're just thinking about the income tax and you want to uh, continue to rely on on, uh, a a revenue source like that, what you could do is uh, modify the current uh, personal income tax and, and we've already got elements of the personal income tax that, that provide favored treatment for savings of various sorts so if you if you go back and think about the traditional uh, individual retirement account you've got a limited ability to uh, set aside uh, uh, some of your income uh, put it in a savings account and it's tax favored you, you can either do that with a traditional ira or a roth ira so think about a traditional IRA, but think about uh, expanding that to the point where a larger portion of your savings would be tax favored. And you know, in the extreme, uh, with a progressive uh, consumption tax, it would look a lot like the current income tax. Although uh, you could deduct all all of your savings, and uh, and that would be. Uh, the extreme. You could you could go to an intermediate level, which is uh, what the tax panel did, uh, the president's tax panel in 2005, 2006, with their plan that they called the growth and investment tax. They proposed that the uh, uh, savings would be taxed at uh, half the rate of uh, ordinary income, wage and salary income. So it was an intermediate type of stage. But you can see how you take the existing uh, personal income tax system, you provide more generous uh, treatment for savings, uh, you retain a progressive structure, rate structure, and you could move in that direction without uh, great disruption in, in terms in terms of uh, implementing an entirely different system of taxation. So uh, you could move incrementally in that direction uh, and you wouldn't have to go all the way to a uh, progressive consumption tax, you could go partially there. Uh, but it would still look an awful lot like the uh, the current income tax system and uh, from my point of view uh, would be administratively uh, feasible and familiar and uh, and and quite possible to move in that direction now what are the benefits of doing that well you know from from uh, the basic economic theory that we know long-term economic growth depends crucially on capital accumulation in the economy and so moving in the direction of consumption taxation uh, helps build the capital stock uh, of the country and helps support uh, longer term uh, economic growth. And so you know in the macro literature you'll find articles, classic articles that will will make those arguments, but that's the basic payoff of moving in that direction. so, you would facilitate the stronger long-term economic growth, uh, and you would still maintain some level of progressivity, uh, whatever level of progressivity you prefer in that system, Uh, So you you have a more efficient tax system, but you can also provide for a degree of uh, equity that you think is appropriate with the progressive uh, structure. So it it would appear that, you know, that's a a good possibility to move in that direction without going uh, to a much more radical system of uh, implementing a federal value-added tax uh, and relying on that as your primary revenue source. All
0: right. This gets a little bit into the weeds, perhaps, but tell me if i'm misunderstanding the macro here if if we were to go toward a consumption tax and this would incentivize or something like it as you mentioned and then this incentivizes some additional savings and investment are there really any gains to be had if we're already living in such a low interest rate world yeah. i mean investment funding is you know funding for investment is already really cheap so if the administrative costs are high what's what's the upside in the short or maybe even in, in the next couple of decades or do you have to tell a really long-term picture
1: it's a long-term story uh, it's uh, there would not be you know a short term immediate you know sizable impact uh, you know it's it takes advantage of uh, long-term uh capital accumulation at relatively uh low incremental rates but you know it's uh this is uh Einstein's most uh, powerful uh, force in the universe uh, right it's uh, compound interest e- you know you would expect long term stronger economic growth based on uh, capital accumulation and you know uh, the, the the current environment with low interest rates you know is is not the anticipated long term uh, situation now you know we we're we're in this environment and we've been here longer than we anticipated but we uh, we don't think this is going to go
0: on in perpetuity all right. Well, I want to come back to that later when we talk about debt, because that seems to be where people are arguing about it. Uh, but in the meantime, let's let's think a little bit about on the expenditure side, because, of course, we're thinking about public finance. and We're thinking about progressive taxation or um, or, or value added taxes. A lot of the expenditure side and the motivation for for increasing tax revenue or just getting things in line with what our current expenditures are social insurance programs. It's um, it's health care and it's Social Security, etc. And And you do discuss the expenditure side in your paper, and you, but you discuss it in terms of this argument uh, called the Samaritan's dilemma, which I, I had been familiar with, but I think is is not it doesn't show up in a lot of textbooks, and I thought it was worth discussing here. I'll let you I'll let you describe the argument, but it leads you to the conclusion that the government has a legitimate role in funding some forms of social insurance. Uh, may, maybe that doesn't fit all of of the welfare state, but at least some of it. But you didn't expand much. So let me just ask you, which government expenditure programs do you think are best justified by the Samaritan's Dilemma argument, and which ones are not?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to think about policy implementation of uh, the basic theory of the Samaritan's Dilemma, where if the, uh, uh, the basic idea is the wealthy in a society are unable to pre-commit to not help those uh, who are be fallen by some sort of disaster. And uh, that leads to a form of moral hazard. Uh, and there's an efficiency argument in the Samaritan's Dilemma that providing in-kind uh, transfers of insurance can actually be efficiency enhancing here. So the uh, I think about this in the context of natural disasters, first of all. I think that's where uh, the Samaritan's Dilemma is most appropriate, uh, where you're you're less likely to get uh, moral hazard kind of implications out of this. And I'll, I'll admit that I uh, I got thinking about this more deeply at a time when I was in Washington. I was uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time when Hurricane Katrina hit uh, New Orleans. And I had to think uh, pretty hard about what you do in a situation like that, uh, where you've got a hurricane with massive flooding and uh, and, and it's a natural disaster. So you, in cases like that, or in cases of earthquakes or uh monsoons or other types of natural disasters, I think it may be appropriate to provide in-kind transfers of uh, of insurance one way or another. It's more problematic, I think, where moral hazard is more likely. Uh, an example might be flood insurance programs, uh, right, where our national flood insurance program, for example, is not actuarially sound. Uh, I learned that with uh, Uh, Hurricane Katrina experience. And so you you induce people to uh, build in floodplains or rebuild in floodplains after they've been flooded out. And uh, and it's a very inefficient uh, way to proceed. So in the case of natural disasters, I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, it would be the first realm of uh, expenditure programs I I would think about uh, applying the uh, implications of the Samaritan's Dilemma but to go, you know, much more broadly than that, you really got to be careful about uh,
0: issues of moral hazard. We talk about moral hazard, of course, a lot when we're thinking about uh, programs like unemployment insurance, um, and yet moral hazard, of course, strikes whether you have whether you have private insurance or public insurance. Um, and and with something like unemployment insurance, you know, I, th- I think there's a real argument that there is no possibility for a private option other than just accumulating lots of savings to insure against unemployment, particularly with recessions. And I'd have to, I think I'd have to think to see whether or not the Samaritan's Dilemma kind of argument applies well in this case, but I do see the dynamic working out where if people lose their jobs and are in acute economic need, there is a strong desire for people to help. And it makes more sense for the government to provide unemployment insurance than Blue Cross Blue Shield or something of the sort. Yeah. Um, am I pushing the logic too far? Or are you just worried that actually you got you got unemployment or you got moral hazard problems coming in both ways and there's just it's not much of a solution?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's the latter. You know, I, I certainly know i I respect the impulse right that the uh the uh the wealthy are unable to pre-commit to not helping in case of some sort of disaster uh and that's you know that's an impulse you know i think that's uh built into us by our creator and i think that's you know deeply christian point of view and uh and so while we call this the samaritan's dilemma i think it, it it accurately Captures uh, that idea, so I, I like it from uh, from that point of view. But I think it's got limited applicability in terms of replacing uh, you know vast uh, array of uh, federal government programs with uh, in kind transfers of insurance. So yes. I think I think we got to be careful about uh, thinking uh, about you know the policy areas in which it it makes more sense and and it would be feasible. So the, I would start with nat- natural disasters uh, and,
0: and think. From there uh, about application. All right. I won't make you go into health insurance then on that one. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. Another day. All right. So let's talk about debt. And, and I wanted to talk about debt, uh, government debt and borrowing in particular, because uh, this has been a really hot question in the economics discipline recently, and I think more discussion about how we should think about government borrowing than than I've seen previously in my career. And, and I've wanted to have someone on the podcast that could talk about it. So I'm just going to say that's going to be you, because you were the only person on our panel that talked about government borrowing at all in in your contribution about economic justice. I'll I'll just set it up uh, for the listeners that aren't following the numbers. Our our government has taken on unprecedented levels of debt recently, seems to be poised to borrow a lot further. Uh, As of the first quarter of 2021, when I went and tried to dig out the numbers, it looks like our debt to GDP ratio was around 127, meaning that our total federal public government debt was well above the size of the US economy. Um, this is much higher than at any other time in history except perhaps during world war ii which was still a bit lower and and you note in your presentation moreover that if we look out into the future our commitments to future spending are such that it could go much higher still when when demographic changes and and promised benefits kick in now you offer some high-level principles related to borrowing and debt in your presentation in your paper you argue debt is to be avoided when you can it's to be repaid uh, that makes sense. And in certain circumstances, uh, debt uh, can be forgiven. But of course, the government is different than a household. And so I wanted to at least think through this. Um, I accept that governments should repay their debts. That's both a pragmatic and a moral argument, I think, that's easy to accept. I, I would also accept that in rare circumstances, justice may demand debt forgiveness, particularly if the debt was um, was taken in, in under really unfortunate circumstances or pushed on someone without power. But it is also the case is it also the case that government should avoid debt government debt is such a central part of our macroeconomic functioning i wonder about this um how do you think is, is there a moral is there a pragmatic reason um for governments to avoid debt particularly whether or not the debt payments get really get really large but particularly as worth thinking about as our, as our debt payments get large
1: yeah i i think in more pragmatic terms in terms of government taking on debt i i think I think it's appropriate for governments uh, to finance through a combination of tax revenue and borrowing. Right, uh, that's the usual way we talk about these things in public finance. You can either you can either fund uh, your current activity with tax revenue, or borrowing, or some combination of the two. And as I teach, you know, undergraduate public finance, I I, I also point out that it's not just the question of tax or borrow it's really a question of taxing today or taxing tomorrow. That's what borrowing uh, involves, right? So it's, pragmatically, it's an issue of uh, the extent to which you borrow and the extent to which you're uh, pre-committing to higher future taxes in order to pay back, right? Uh, So if you think in in terms of the uh, the future interest costs involved, and you know, I included in my paper some projections by the Congressional Budget Office. I mean, the scary one is the CBO projection that at the end of their long-term horizon, they were projecting we may be spending more on uh, interest payments on our debt than we're current, than we will be at that time spending on Social Security, which would be really unprecedented and uh, a massive amount. Now. Built into those projections are assumptions about the trajectory of interest rates, uh, nominal interest rates. You know, we're we're uh, we're currently in this environment where you know nominal interest rates have been uh, very very low. We've we've been at ne- nearly zero, and in some periods in recent history, we've had negative real rates. Uh, and uh, if you can borrow at zero interest, uh, by all means, it makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, and that's what governments have been doing. They've been they've been rational in that sense. Uh, when you can borrow at such low rates, it makes a lot of sense. But uh, we don't expect that situation to continue forever. It, currently, it looks as though rates are are uh, going to rise. Long-term rates are are going to rise, and uh, with inflation heating up currently. We expect uh, nominal uh, rates to be rising, uh, perhaps uh, substantially. And so, it's a, it's a question of what's what's a reasonable amount of debt for a government to take on, and what's the the uh, the interest burden of that debt. You know, there there was a time when I was uh, doing advising in the Balkans. Uh, I remember advising uh, central banks using uh, the IMF uh, rule of thumb at the time that. You know, debt to GDP ratios uh, should not go above forty percent. And that was uh, more or less a hard rule uh, that the IMF was applying. And now in retrospect, uh, it it sounds comical. but we but we do have relatively recent experience uh, with countries like Greece and others during the financial crisis where their uh, debt to GDP ratios got high and they were in serious trouble. So, yeah, i I, I think from a government point of view, uh it's a pragmatic concern i did point out you know and and this builds on an earlier article uh, from faith in economics uh that you know the the biblical metaphor is debt is like sin right and and so uh, from a personal point of view as you've pointed out the distinction we need to be careful about this you know, the situation is different for uh, sovereign governments, I understand. they've got uh, they've got longer lives than you and I have uh, physically. Of course, uh, we expect to uh, live in perpetuity, uh, but not physically. But the government uh, has the ability the unique ability to uh, roll over its debt and uh, continue on and on. So uh, I- I'm back to uh, sort of a pragmatic concern about, the level of debt, as it involves uh, interest repayments and, and a burden on society, you know, I, I fully recognize that the extent to which uh, debt is a burden depends on how open the economy is. It depends on a number of other factors that have changed in recent years, and uh, and may enable us to uh, sustain higher levels of debt relative to GDP than was uh, the case previously. But nonetheless. Yeah, you know, I I do think we've got to uh, think about this, and uh, you know, I I I find uh, you know the Ricardian equivalence uh, idea interesting uh, to think about as as well as as debt r- levels go up, people anticipate higher future taxes as a result and may adjust their behavior correspondingly. I don't you know there's uh, mixed evidence on whether uh, Ricardian equivalence actually holds. I've done some recent uh, research with a grad student looking at cities, of 150 cities in the United States, and we've looked at uh, migration patterns in and out of these cities, uh, and whether those migration patterns are affected by either tax levels or debt uh, levels, and we find in our empirical work that uh, out-migration from cities is uh, is influenced by both tax levels and uh, debt levels, but it's a much stronger effect on taxes uh, than it is on. And our interpretation of that is that uh, people are more aware of uh, taxes and may move out of a community because of high taxes relative to the value of the services they're receiving. But it's a salient story. They're probably not very aware of the municipal debt per capita, uh, and And the outmigration patterns are are not so strongly affected by by debt as they are by taxes.
0: That's really interesting. I'd love to link to that in the show notes if you have a working paper available or or something something like it. Um, yeah, we've got we've got a paper uh, i can I can send to you. Excellent. Um, I'd like to to push a little bit on the interest rate story, and only because I want to I want to have a little bit of a conversation about where the economics discipline is today. Um, It appears to me that in in recent years, there's a softening of concern about government debt among economists. I I suspect that this might have some political convenience to it since both parties seem keen on increasing debt levels. At least some economists have argued, though, that the higher debt levels are not a big problem because the interest rates and you've mentioned that already. Although, you know, the argument is I think that there's there's some kind of secular stagnation that's hitting not just the United States, but the rest of the industrialized world interest rates aren't just low for us they're low um, across Europe as well, and they have been for some time um, before and after crises. Um, and so at least some prominent economists are expecting this kind of low interest rate environment to continue for structural reasons. I honestly am, am not qualified to evaluate those kinds of arguments um, because I haven't done the deep reading and I'm not a macroeconomist. But those interest rates do play a really important role in how we evaluate a particular level of debt, right? A debt to GDP ratio of 40% is bad when you have high interest rates, but it's not nearly, you know, but 100% could be better if we had really low interest rates. Um, and, and all of those questions about Ricardian equivalence probably Im- imply some expectations about interest rates as well, so, so I ask you have, have your views remained more constant or are you with the rest of the economics profession at least softening your worries about debt, um, or do you think we're going the wrong way
1: given the current environment, my, my views on debt have softened somewhat. You, you know, there, there was a time when I was advising central banks uh, using the IMF 40% rule, although part of what I was doing was uh, helping the staff of the central bank be able to interact with the IMF and challenge uh, the 40% rule based on their country-specific conditions. And so I, I never viewed the 40% rule as hard and fast. It, it, it you know, it it was a rule of thumb that the imf used they were not very flexible about that Uh, but part of my role uh, was to uh, train the staff members uh, to be able to uh, understand the underlying uh, mathematical model that the imf was using and uh, be able to uh, challenge the implicit assumptions there and so a simple rule like that is uh is almost never correct you know it's like the broken clock that's uh, correct twice a day but the but the underlying economic conditions uh in the current environment are somewhat different even but even if you go back and think about the 100 percent debt to gdp ratio coming out of the second world war uh interest rates real rates were relatively low at that point as well and it took us from you know 1945 till uh the mid-1970s or maybe 1980 to run that debt-to-GDP ratio down to uh, something like 25 or 30 percent. And the rise since then has been for fundamentally different reasons than than the run-up to fight the war. And so I think you do have to question, you know, why it is we're adding to our debt. Uh, Does this debt uh, fundamentally enhance our ability in the future uh, to produce more goods and services and have a higher level of GDP? or is it for basically consumption purposes? And, and I think that matters. But I, I too am not a macroeconomist and I don't uh, I don't do not uh, do projections. I'm just thinking about this from uh, the point of view of uh, the, the underlying need for uh, tax revenues to pay back the debt in the long run. That's yeah. basically my perspective. If you're borrowing today, you're gonna to have to pay it back tomorrow. What kind of a tax system are you going to need in order to, uh, to do that? Uh, the the Extent to which uh, Ricardian equivalence uh, actually holds, uh, in my mind, is still uh, debatable. Uh, in, in the paper I mentioned, uh, I, I think I've provided the uh, the first evidence uh, that Ricardian equivalence does not hold uh, at the municipal level in the United States, because people seem to behave differently uh, in reaction to higher taxes than they do in in response to higher debt. You know, I, I think. We're in a fundamentally different kind of economic environment now, and uh, I think it it leads to a different attitude about debt. And perhaps it's relevant to call that a softer attitude about debt. But I, you know, I'm I'm not a, a modern macroeconomic, or a modern monetary uh, theory uh, person. I, you know, I, I don't go in that direction
0: well, let me let me finish with this. I, I think my own concerns about about debt have less to do with the total amount of money the u s. government wants to spend. I think we can have arguments about how we spend money, and we'll all I'd certainly find um, some programs that I think should be smaller and some that should be bigger and whatnot. I, I I do get concerned about the fact that that proposals to spend lots of of money, which are readily uh, available today in Washington, are not matched with plans, even over the long term, to bring tax revenues in line with expenditures. And uh, so you've been watching the public finance scene in Washington a bit longer than, than I have. Do you see any prospect for the political process to result in something like a sustainable tax revenue picture over the next decade? Or is there something politically that's that's broken in that respect?
1: Yeah, I'm not very optimistic on this. Uh, it, it seems to me the political system is broken in this regard and perhaps others, but I'll, uh, <laughs> let's uh, stick with this context right now. Uh, there just doesn't seem to be uh, an appetite for sort of fiscal responsibility in this regard and i think until you know there are more apparent consequences of you know large deficit spending we're unlikely to get a sense of realism about these matters in washington so yeah i think i think we're stuck uh, in this situation for some time you know the 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 uh, the political situation in washington uh, reflects the polarization of our society more generally and uh, and I don't see an easy resolution to that uh, in the short run, uh, and I think that has its fiscal consequences. I think we're going to see large expenditure plans approved and uh, without without all of the revenues necessary to uh, to fund those. I mean, that's that's always the situation, right? The, the Democrats want to spend more. The Republicans want to tax less, and uh, and I don't I don't know that that's going to change. And uh, absent some crisis that's brought on by the fiscal imbalance i think will muddle along
0: well uh just just to give you a chance to leave us on a on a less pessimistic note is there is there anything else that you'd you'd like to share with our our dozens or hundreds of listeners depending on the episode here uh, before before i let you go well all
1: i would say is that for for those who uh think in uh, christian terms right who think christianly uh these are interesting Questions. So, you know, in my uh, the paper that I presented, I tried to summarize some biblical principles that I think have some bearing on tax policy. You know, I, I don't think Scripture teaches you know a specific tax base or tax rate that is appropriate, but there are principles in Scripture uh, that are relevant, and uh, I think we need to think Christianly about taxes and expenditures and debt, and uh, and the challenge for Christian economists is to uh, to take the principles that are in scripture and try to uh, bring them to bear in some ways on public policy without thinking that scripture gives us, you know, ready-made solutions because it doesn't. It, you know, th- these, are, these are the books uh, that were written uh, perhaps thousands of years ago in the case of the Old Testament and they don't have direct bearing to a modern uh, economy such as ours. And yet the principles of justice and uh, care and concern for uh, the disadvantaged uh, are still relevant. And I think, you know, in the creation mandate, uh, we have to care about stewardship, uh, which in my mind uh, still has to do with things like excess burdens and deadweight losses and all of that. So uh, I find it fascinating to think about applying biblical principles even in in these realms of uh, modern economic theory uh, as they apply to public finance.
0: I, th- I think that's a great note to end on. I appreciate it. And I'll be sure in the, in the show notes here, our listeners can go and find the things that you've written for Faith and Economics over the years that you reference here and and dig into the details as, as you offer them. Thank you so much for having the conversation with me today, John.
1: Yeah, sure. It's, it, was, uh, it was fun.
0: That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them, and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.